Welcome to the Amplified Change podcast on safeguarding. My guest today is Eloise Walton. Eloise is a Senior Operation Manager at Manuel Daniels, which is one of the founding partners of Amplified Change. She's one of Manuel Daniels' trained experts on safeguarding of children and vulnerable adults. Eloise has extensive experience across Francophone and Lusophone Africa, and is fluent in French, Portuguese, and English. Eloise, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Rakia. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, first of all, what is safeguarding? Safeguarding, it's literally the act of keeping every child an adult, in fact, everybody, uh, safe which means not to be exposed to any form of harm or abuse. So for organizations, safeguarding means it's the responsibility of those organizations that their board, their staff, their volunteers, their operations and their programs do no harm or abuse. Eloise, can you define um, harm? What does it mean? Yeah, so harm and abuse can occur as a result of power imbalances, uh, and these include uh, physical or sexual abuse, uh, sexual harassment and or exploitation, other forms of exploitation such as slave labor, bullying or harassment. So when people think of safeguarding, they tend to just think about children, but safeguarding actually applies to adults as well, and any policy needs to cover risks related to adults too. Could you tell us why is safeguarding so important? Safeguarding is actually a core value of Amplify Change. So everyone, every child, every adult has the fundamental right to be safe and protected from the risk of harm. Safeguarding is at the heart of what Amplify Change stands for. It's one of our core values, as I said, and it needs to be a core value for everyone we work with or who receives a grant from us. Within every society and culture, there are power differentials, and having good safeguarding measures in place ensures that everyone is protected as far as possible from those power differentials, um, from being abused or taken advantage of. Okay, and protection? Uh, people might hear the word protection being used. So safeguarding is the actions that are taken to prevent harm and abuse, whereas protection is a child or an adult that needs an additional level of monitoring and support because they've experienced or are at a specific risk of experiencing abuse, neglect or violence, for example. Eloise, in your experience, what are the main barriers to ensure good safeguarding in organizations? Yeah, there can be quite a lot of barriers to ensure good safeguarding. So some of those might include uh, cultural barriers. People might think that it would never happen in their culture or that when it does happen, it's acceptable. One of the examples we come across sometimes is child marriage under the age of 18, or someone in the organization has a relationship outside of the organization with someone who's under 18. Amplified change regards anyone under the age of 18 as a minor, and the organizations it works with um, and funds share that view, regardless of the laws of the country in which they operate. So all grantees have to sign up to Amplify Change's universal safeguarding principles, and these are in the grantee contracts. Other barriers include knowledge. People don't understand sometimes much about the issue or don't know what to do if a safeguarding issue occurs. Safeguarding is seen 
quite often as a tick in the box exercise. So an organization might, you know, Google safeguarding policy and copy paste something they found off the internet to fulfill the criteria. But finding a policy online or quickly developing one, you know, in a rush without really thinking about it doesn't mean that one really understands the issues. Eloise, regarding the knowledge barrier, what advice could you give organizations? Yeah, so organizations should discuss the issue both internally and externally and know their their own situation. So this means identifying who their beneficiaries are and who they work with to define whether they are children or adults and what are the likely safeguarding risks in their situation and country. Going online to copy and paste another organization's safeguarding policy is not enough, um, as it would not be specific or relevant to the organization. There are other barriers as well, such as people not taking the issue seriously enough, thinking it won't happen in their organization. You know, we do hear sometimes, oh, we've never had a problem before, and we'll deal with it if and when it happens. You know, it's better to be prepared really in advance than to have to deal with something if it happens. Also, Victims being blamed or not believed can be a barrier. People worrying about coming forward with concerns, they think they might be penalized in some way for causing trouble or feel something is wrong but have no direct evidence, so they don't really want to speak up. Another one is also organizations or people worrying about getting the police involved, as in some areas or some contexts, this could lead to further problems. But safeguarding issues can and do occur. And when they do, you need to be ready to respond quickly and appropriately. Otherwise, the situation can get out of hand very quickly and even more damage is done. What I take from that is safeguarding is a universal issue first and that each organization should be prepared for it as for any other risks. This safeguarding risk should be identified and included in all policies, and people need to be aware of them. Yes, absolutely. Organizations should always be alert for any potential safeguarding issues. Eloise, can you give us a couple of real-life examples of um, safeguarding and how they were dealt with? Yeah, of course. More and more services are going online, especially in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In one service, a telephone support line, one of the key workers noticed that a male colleague often seemed to be talking to the same young female client. She heard him use her name and also he mentioned a couple of other things which suggested that it was the same person on the phone line. She also later overheard him saying to the client to remember to always ask for him whenever she phoned. He did not say anything inappropriate to her about anything else. But the worker was concerned about this as they were all just meant to pick up the phone to whichever call came through. So she liked her colleague and didn't want to get him into trouble, but also felt uncomfortable with what he was doing because it wasn't quite what they were supposed to do. So after thinking about it, she approached her organization's safeguarding lead and raised her concerns. The safeguarding lead reassured her uh, that she'd done the right thing and that she would follow it up. So the safeguarding lead spoke to the man concerned. He said he'd built a good rapport with the woman and felt he could really help her. But the safeguarding lead reminded him about the safeguarding policy and that calls should be taken at random. So whenever there's the next call, whoever's free would pick up the phone and people shouldn't be asking for a specific helpline person. Yeah, 
So she said that the next time the caller rang and asked for him, he needed to say that he was tied up with something else and it was best to speak to a colleague. So the safeguarding lead also rearranged for all of the telephone support team to have a reminder training about the policy and what was and wasn't appropriate communication and behavior. So that's, you know, one example, really. Yeah. So it is therefore instrumental to have training sessions to prevent compromising situations. You have another example. Yeah. So the other example uh, I'll share with you is about a girl who we'll call Girl A, uh, who was 13 years old. For about a year, she'd attended the weekly girls after school club and never missed a session. She was a popular and active member. She liked getting involved in the activities and was full of ideas and suggestions. But over a number of weeks, the club leader began to notice that Girl A was becoming increasingly withdrawn. She'd mm. stopped speaking up in sessions and rather than being at the front in all the activities like before, she would hang back. She hardly smiled anymore and seemed to have lost her confidence. She also started to miss sessions. So the club leader asked a few times if there was anything wrong, but yeah. Girl A just said that she was fine. She also asked Girl A's friends but they didn't know what was wrong either, just that she'd changed. So the club leader raised the issue with her manager, who suggested talking to the girl's teacher and then perhaps talking to the parents. So the teacher reported that she was worried too. So the club leader decided to speak to the parents the next time she saw them. And through discussions with the parents, the club leader found that girl A's father thought his daughter should leave school and get married. They'd started to look for prospective husbands for her. And although the girl didn't want to get married, the father said their traditions demanded it. So it wasn't an easy situation and it took some time. But with the support of community elders, uh, the girl's teacher, club leader's manager and others, the club leader managed to persuade the girl's parents to let her continue with her schooling and the marriage plans were put on hold. So it was like a, a weight had been lifted off the girl's shoulders and she once again became an active member of the after school club. She started smiling again and her confidence returned. Great. So what I take from these two examples, Eloise, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when dealing with potential safeguarding cases, one should, first of all, ensure confidentiality for each person involved, including the potential victim, and be alert when someone's behavior changes, correct? Yes, that's correct. So in this respect, your second example, there is a significant change in the girl's attitude, which alerted both the club leader and the teacher. That is how they managed to help her by convincing her parents to let her study for her future. It's amazing. One of the objectives of safeguarding is prevention, but also case management and resolution by creating safe spaces for people involved. So my next question is, what can grantees and potential grantees do to ensure that everyone remains safe? Firstly, safeguarding must be made a priority issue in the organization. There needs to be buy-in to safeguarding from the top down. 
then you need to develop a good workable policy and processes for dealing with and resolving incidences. There are lots of templates that you can use for guidance, but ultimately you need to have a policy that's suited to your organization and your specific context. You need to make clear who is the safeguarding lead in your organization. Everyone needs to know who to go to and who can take forward safeguarding concerns with confidence. Safeguarding is everyone's responsibility. Everyone in the organization needs to think through what safeguarding may mean for them in their specific role. It's important to sit down as a team in the organization and think about what are the risks in the organization at different times and in different situations. How can we mitigate those risks? For example, uh, no one-to-one sessions with children, limiting access to sensitive information such as children's details on a database, not giving out personal phone numbers or other details. Also, what is the process for reporting concerns? Who in the organization will be the safeguarding lead, i.e. the person who takes responsibility for ensuring safeguarding measures in the organization are as strong as they can be, and who oversees any investigation when a concern is raised? So you also need to think about who is the backup safeguarding lead. So for example, if you only had one safeguarding lead, there could be an example where someone wanted to raise a concern against that particular person. So ideally, you would need two, the main safeguarding lead who people would go to, but if they're not comfortable going to that person for a particular reason, there is a backup safeguarding lead. Think about what makes those people suitable to be the safeguarding leads. For example, is it their life experience? Is it their training, their skills, etc.? Organizations need to think about confidentiality. All incidents should be raised confidentially and investigated confidentially. They need an incident register where all concerns are logged, dated, and the outcome of any incidents are recorded. They need to think about what is the process for concerns to be investigated. And if it is a false alarm, that's okay. There should be no repercussions for anyone, not for the person who raised the issue or the person who was investigated. And also, they can have some very simple elements in place for safeguarding. For example, a lockable post box in the office where anyone can drop an anonymous note with their concerns um, and the box can be checked every morning. This can be enough if you know that not everyone in your community has access to a computer or the internet, for example. Louise, is there other thing to consider or to think about to include in safeguarding policy? Organizations also need to think about where the incident register is kept. It should be kept in a safe place, ideally, you know, a lockable cabinet, so not everyone has access to it. And they should also think about who has access to that incident register. What timescales should be involved in investigating an incident? Um, ideally, the policy should state you know, how long things will take for an investigation. They should think about how to write an accessible policy that covers children and adults that everyone can read and sign. So if your organization works in a country where English isn't the main language spoken by everyone, then an English language policy may be good for a donor to read, but it would be no use to the beneficiaries of your organization, for example. Often we do see policies available only in English in Francophone countries, but not all staff and volunteers may be able to read and understand English. So there is a need to translate the policy and sometimes to do it in different languages to ensure that it's adequate in the context and that each person in the organization can effectively read and understand it. 
also the policy needs to be reviewed each time there's an incident and updated if necessary. So it's a good idea to have version control. And also think about training. Is the suitable training available? And if so, you know, you can put it in your grant budget because Amplify Change can support the cost of this. Great. And the training, it should be refreshed and regular. Yes, absolutely. Anyways, the question Amplify Change often gets from organization, our grantee, is why should they also include vulnerable adults if their beneficiaries, um, if they are working mainly or their work involves children? Yeah, I can understand that, why they're asking that. But the answer is really because the safeguarding policy covers everyone. It's not limited to the organization's beneficiaries. So it also includes uh, staff and volunteers. And there can be cases of abuse between a person who is high in the organization's hierarchy and a young volunteer who may be new to the organization, for instance. Any final thoughts, Eloise, you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So in terms of safeguarding, some key takeaways I would advise for organizations is uh, to be prepared. Everyone in the organization needs to know what to do. Um, Confidentiality is key. So everyone should feel confident that they can come forward to raise any safeguarding issue or concern and that it will be dealt with in confidence and investigated Uh, Amplify Change has a guidance document that is accessible on our website at www.amplifychange.org. And this includes pointers on what is defined as harm and also things to think about when developing or updating your safeguarding policy. And the document will help you as you write your self-guarding policy or strengthen the one that you have. And lastly, I think it's always good to err on the side of caution. So never be afraid to raise something if you think something doesn't feel right or seems odd, even if there's no direct evidence. It's always better to be safe than sorry. Great. Amazing. Thank you very much, Eloise, for your insights and for being with us on this podcast. And thank you for this interesting highlights on that important issue for organization Amplify Change works with. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Next time on the Amplify Change podcast. Hello, my name is Hale Vale. And I am the Sexuality and Network Coordinator at the Women's Rights Programme, which is uh, one program at Association for Progressive Communication, APC. And I'm uh, a happy guest at the new podcast from Amplify Change, which is uh, about online advocacy. And so please listen to it and learn more about online advocacy and be gentle with me, (laughs) as I'm trying to be gentle with everyone else.